History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 499th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going back to my old stomping grounds. And literally, this was an area that I used to live in, Capitol Hill in Denver, Colorado. And we're going to be checking out the Peabody Whitehead Mansion. Very cool. Looking forward to it. This is a location that I've probably walked past many, many times. And I definitely know I stood outside of it once when I was on a ghost tour and heard about the stories about this place. We're looking forward to sharing the history and haunts of it with you guys. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Heather, Amy, Benjamin, Keely, Barbara Ann, Brian, Isella, hope we said that right, and Edgar. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now, this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. Many nursing homes and hospitals employ the service of therapy animals. They can vary by species, but most commonly dogs and cats are the animals that supply the need. There was a cat in a nursing home in Providence, Rhode Island, by the name of Oscar, who became quite famous. This fine, fluffy feline was said to be rather skittish when he first came to call the nursing home and rehabilitation center home back in 2005. Initially, Oscar wasn't terribly social and preferred spending his time in a supply closet or under various patients' beds. Gradually, however, the staff started noticing a change with Oscar. When a patient was nearing the end of their life, Oscar would crawl up in bed with them and stay there comforting the person as their end drew near. At first, when his behavior was noticed, the connection wasn't clear, but gradually his predictability proved itself once Oscar hit between 20 or 30 deaths in a row. Some people at the home called Oscar an angel of death, while others just simply referred to him as an angel. Now, the way in which Oscar was able to predict who would be passing next is not concretely determined. It could be that prior to passing that the body emits a particular smell that Oscar was able to clue into. It's also possible that the cat could see the spirits of those coming back to check on their friend or loved one. Sadly, in February 2022, the sweet floof went the way of his charges. However, we are positive that the staff at the nursing home and rehabilitation center miss him daily. Therapy animals do so much good helping those who are struggling in one way or another, but being able to predict a person's passing certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history.
month of August on the 6th in 1881, Alexander Fleming was born. He is most well known for discovering a broadly effective antibiotic. As a young man, Alexander was encouraged by his physician brother to study medicine as his career path. Alexander did just that, graduating from university in 1906 with distinction. From there, Fleming joined the research department at his alma mater, where he became a research assistant bacteriologist. He worked under Sir Almroth Wright, who was a pioneer in the area of vaccine therapy and immunology. During his medical service in World War I, Alexander witnessed many soldiers dying of sepsis caused by infected wounds. He watched as the common antiseptics of the time often made the soldiers' injuries worse. In an article he had published in a medical journal, he explained that the topical antiseptics were not able to reach the deeper penetrating anaerobic bacteria which was causing the demise of so many soldiers. After the war, Fleming continued his research into bacteria and antibacterial substances. Many presentations and studies of Alexander's findings were relatively ignored. However, on September 28, 1928, he revolutionized the world of medicine. He had been studying staphylococci and discovered a fungus growing on some of the plates. The staphylococci that was nearest the fungus were destroyed, whereas the staph that was further away on the petri dishes were intact. The mold that had destroyed the staphylococci was penicillium. Alexander continued to study the mold's effect on gram-positive bacterias that caused illnesses like pneumonia, meningitis, and diphtheria, as well as the effects on gonorrhea, which is a gram-negative bacteria. Fleming shared his discovery with the Medical Research Club on February 13, 1929. The presentation received little response. However, in 1940, two biochemists in Oxford began studying penicillin further. Through their studies and clinical trial successes, they began the development of methods for mass production and mass distribution in 1945. The discovery of penicillin and its development marked the beginning of modern antibiotics. Denver was considered the queen city of the plains during the Victorian era, and by 1867, it was designated the territorial capital. Colorado would gain statehood in 1876, and a capital would be built on Capitol Hill starting in 1886. Capitol Hill would become a thriving neighborhood, particularly for the wealthy, and it would be here that Denver's Millionaire's Row would be established. The Peabody Whitehead Mansion was one of those homes that has survived from that opulent era. There are many ghost stories that have been told about this property through the years. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of the Peabody Whitehead Mansion. So last week we talked about a millionaire's row and this week we're doing it again. We should see how many of these we could find that still have all their Victorian homes still hanging out. <laughs> Just following the trend. This area in Capitol Hill is very cool. It's got so many Victorians sitting in it still. In the Grant Humphreys mansion, my ex had had an office there for many years. And so my mom was so excited because she got to go through and check out the inside of it. because She'd never seen the inside of it before. I bet she was very excited. The Colorado silver boom began in 1879 and lasted longer than the Colorado gold rush of 1859. The silver boom brought unprecedented growth to Denver. The wealthy families in the area started looking for a place to build their homes that would take them out of the pollution of lower downtown. 
That higher ground was Capitol Hill, and in this neighborhood was Grant Street, which was once home to the city's Millionaire's Row. Very few of the mansions built during that time still exist, as many were demolished in the early 20th century. And, as is the case with so many of these historic mansions, many were turned into apartments and office buildings. And that's the case with the Peabody Whitehead Mansion. It eventually became home to a variety of businesses. But it started off as the home for Dr. William R. Whitehead. William Whitehead was born in 1831 in Suffolk, Virginia. He decided to pursue medicine and went to school at both the University of Virginia and the University of Pennsylvania. He went to Europe for postgraduate work in Paris and Vienna, and it was while he was in Vienna that he volunteered during the Crimean War to be a surgeon for the Russian army. The Crimean War was fought from October 1853 to February 1856 between Russia and a, co- and a coalition formed by Britain, France, the Ottoman Empire, and Sardinia Piedmont. At its base, the war was religious, with a disagreement between Christians in Palestine and Catholics in France and the Russian Orthodox Church. This was one of the first wars to incorporate technological advances like photographs, telegraphs, the railroad, and explosive shells. It was during this war that Florence Nightingale came onto the scene. The war humiliated Russia with defeat in one of the bloodiest wars of modern history. Medical treatment would change during this time, and Whitehead was decorated by Tsar Alexander II for his services. Emperor Louis Napoleon also praised him. That's one way to jump into the fray and be a doctor and get your medical experience. Go to a really bloody war. I guess so. When Dr. Whitehead got back to the States, the country was in a turmoil that would erupt into the Civil War. So now, hey, go from one bloody war to an even bloodier one. Whitehead was on the side of the Confederacy, and he served directly under General Robert E. Lee. He was the doctor to treat Stonewall Jackson's accidental injury at the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863. And as people may recall, Stonewall Jackson was actually shot by his own men in the arm. He put the general in an ambulance, but unfortunately Jackson would succumb to his injuries. Whitehead went to New York after the war and worked as a clinical surgeon at New York University. Both his wife and infant son became ill, and the Whitehead family moved to Denver for the cleaner air in the early 1870s. The doctor became a leading physician in Denver. I tried to look to see what his wife and infant son were sick with. I was guessing tuberculosis. That's the only thing I could think of. I'm like, it had to have been consumption because that's why everybody was coming to Denver for the thinner, cleaner, drier air. Whitehead hired architect Frank Edbrook to design his Queen Anne-style home on Millionaire's Row in 1889. Edbrook had also designed the Tabor Opera House and the Brown Palace Hotel. The mansion was unique in that it was built from Colorado Red Rock and had massive masonry walls and chimneys with the steeply pitched roof of an English country house and a large front porch. Dr. Whitehead asked for Edbrook to include a grandiose ballroom because he liked to throw lavish parties. He would become ill and die on October 13, 1902. The other man that the house was named for didn't actually live in it for very long. This was Republican businessman James H. Peabody, who ran for governor of Colorado in 1902, and he won. There was no governor's mansion at the time, so Peabody rented the Whitehead Mansion from 1903 to 1904. Peabody's tenure as governor was tumultuous. He had been born in Vermont in 1852, and he went to business school there. His family relocated to Pueblo, Colorado, and he followed when he graduated to help run the family business. Peabody moved to Canyon City in 1875, and he established himself as very successful in business, banking, and local politics. 
One of the major issues during his governorship were mining strikes, and there were many violent clashes. Peabody took the side of the mine owners, and he called the National Guard in to squash the strikes. More than 100 people died. Most of the unions were destroyed by the fall of 1904. The next election for governor would be fraught with issues. Okay, so buckle in for this one. I think we've talked about this on the show before. I can't remember what it was in regards to, but I do remember talking about this at one point. So the Democrat beat Peabody, but fraud was found, so thousands of votes were annulled. The Democrats found irregular votes for Peabody as well. So an unusual compromise was worked out. So we know we've been hearing this about from both sides. You know, people are always saying, you know, something was rigged, something got stolen. This is not new, guys. <laughs> this goes way back. But the Democrats and the Republicans decided that they're going to make some kind of a compromise here. So this is what they came up with. The Democrats' name was Alva Adams. He was given the governorship, and then Peabody was allowed to pick the next two justices of the Colorado Supreme Court. So we know when it comes to the Supreme Court, whether it's your state or the nation, that picking a Supreme Court justice is very, very important. And Peabody knew that they were getting ready to have two of them. That's why he really wanted to win this one. So it was very important to him. So they thought, well, both things are important, being governor and the Supreme Court justices. So we'll let you have one of them and then you get the other one. All right. So everything seems perfectly fine, right? Well, further investigations proved that both parties had basically cheated. So the legislature declared Adam's governorship a fraud and he was taken out of office. They replaced him with Peabody, who was forced to immediately resign. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> so then the Republican Lieutenant Governor Jesse McDonald was sworn in as governor. On the 16th of March in 1904, Colorado had three governors. I have a feeling we did this as a moment oddity or something, maybe. Most likely. <laughs> or maybe it was a history one. I don't know. But I think they're the only state to have had three governors in one day. Peabody moved out of the mansion and it became apartments. I'm not really sure. I guess because he had a very important name because he'd been governor. That's why the house also is tacked on with his name because he never owned it. He just rented it and he was only there for less than two years. By the 1950s, the mansion was being used as a place for business ranging from restaurants to bars and nightclubs. Strings of them came through and only lasted a few years each. The Carriage Inn, the Bombay Club, Senior Peabody's, Albies, Bentley's, and so on. This lasted until the 1990s when the house was bought by Richard R. Arbor Associates, which was an engineering firm that renovated the mansion as their offices. In 1993, the mansion was listed as a Denver landmark by Ordinance 534 of the Denver City Council. Through the 2000s, other businesses have used the house. And as Diane said, she stood outside this location on a ghost tour in 2016, and at that time, it was home to a law office. There are claims of at least a dozen ghosts in the mansion. Ghostly experiences started almost immediately after Dr. Whitehead moved into the house, so he was actually experiencing them. People thought that some of the soldiers who were his battlefield patients that passed had spirits that followed him. I don't know if this was really true, that he was seeing spirits of people who he had attempted to save and didn't have luck with, or if it was a form of PTSD for him and he had some guilt or something and he thought he was seeing things. Other ghosts may be from Peabody's time in the house in the form of dead Union miners seeking revenge. One business in the mansion had been MEGA 1031, Mega 1031, 
and they reported many haunted events during their tenure. They reported on their website, Inexplicably, books have mysteriously fallen from shelves in empty rooms and paperwork has strangely rearranged itself. We've even heard an occasional faint baby's cry. However, none of us have actually spotted any cloudy spirits lurking in our offices. Maybe they were just real looking. Yeah, I mean, you're just assuming they're going to be cloudy. This was not the only business to have issues. The various restaurants all reported that trays would mysteriously tip over with dishes and glasses crashing to the floor. Guests and staff would all watch as utensils and pots and pans would fly around the kitchen and dining areas. That sounds like that scene in the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> oh, I know. You're just like looking around going, oh, there's just a few like butter knives and forks zipping around. Oh, there's a pot. Maybe Madame Leota was swinging some stuff around in there. Possibly. The next line says the servant bells by ringing a bell. Speaking of the Haunted Mansion. Madame Leota. <laughs> <laughs> the servant bells that had been installed when the home was built would go off on their own at random times. What's even weirder is I believe that they were no longer hooked up. They also heard baby cries coming from behind the second story bar. One of the more bizarre stories involved a chandelier that would flicker all the time. One of the managers finally decided to call in an electrician to fix the issue. Both men were completely shocked when the electrician found that the chandelier wasn't hooked up to any electrical wiring. Hmm. <laughs> How does that thing keep turning itself on and off? A ghost was blamed for a bottle of beer that was poured down the shirt of a cook who had disparaged homosexuals. <laughs> Don't talk bad about us. One bar that occupied the location decided to embrace the hauntings and called itself Spirits on Grant Street and opened on Halloween in 1983. That business was forced to close within a year because the activity became too much. And I believe that bottle of beer getting poured down the shirt of a cook happened during their tenure. So I think they were like, things are getting a little out of hand here. Seances were conducted in the house in the late 1970s. Psychics who have visited the location report that a woman named Eloise would greet partygoers at the top of the staircase back during the Whitehead era. She was supposed to get married in the mansion, but was stood up, so she ended up hanging herself in the house. There is no proof for this in any newspaper reports. Eloise was blamed when one evening staff were mocking the fact that she haunted the house and a table leapt up from the floor about eight inches. So don't say, oh, sure, this place is being haunted by a woman named Eloise. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Supposedly, another woman hanged herself in the basement from a pipe. She had been working as a waitress at one of the restaurants. The first floor women's bathroom, of course, is said to be haunted by a man whose cherry pipe tobacco is smelled in there. What is he doing hanging out in the women's bathroom? Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> and now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. A legend claims that construction workers abducted a girl in the 1970s and took her into the house where they raped and murdered her and buried her in the basement. Again, there is no proof for this in any official records, but investigations have turned up interesting things that might support the story. Of course, it's a story they tell on the ghost tours, even though it's just supposedly a legend. Ghost Adventures visited the house during Season 7 in 2012, and their tour guide and historian at the house was Phil Goodstein. So I think most listeners are aware that my mother is a Colorado historian. So she made friends with a lot of these historians in Colorado and such. Phil Goodstein was not one of her friends. <laughs> Let me just say, I didn't really know a whole lot about that. But in watching the ghost adventures and just watching him tell Zach and the guys the history of the place, 
And you could see like the looks on their face as they kind of started getting glassy eyed as Phil was going on and on and on and on about all this other stuff that they're not interested in. They just want to get in there and get the juicy stuff. Uh, Zach would not be a, a big fan of our show, I don't think. He, he doesn't want to get too detailed with the history. He wants a little bit of it, but he is a very good historian and almost all of the haunted Denver books that I have are by him. And as Diane said, he has written many books about the ghosts around Denver, and he claims that this is one of the most haunted places in Denver. The guys also talked to Dr. Tom Noel, whom Diane's mother worked with for years, helping him research his books. Yeah, this was like old home week for me. I was like, oh, clearly. <laughs> and let me just tell a little story about Dr. Noel. He actually, when people ask, how did I get into all this stuff and into ghost tours? And I tell people when I was 16, my mom took me to a bunch of really haunted houses for Halloween. And people were telling us the stories with the history and then the ghost stories. Well, it was two gentlemen. One of them, I can't remember, he was a politician. And I can't remember exactly if he was like a representative or a state senator or something. Gallagher, I know, was his last name. And then Dr. Tom Noel was the other one. And my mom says he can he can tell you a good story. Like he might pull your leg a little bit with some of this stuff, but he knows his history too. So he didn't know any of the stories about the woman being raped or killed at the house. A documentary producer named Tim Schultz edited a documentary that he was working on at the house. He told Zach about his experiences. Tim witnessed a guy get pushed up against the wall by something he couldn't see. He described it like his arms were pinned up and they tried to push him and move him, and they couldn't move him. What? Like, he was glued to the wall? When the guy was kind of demonstrating what had happened, that's the way it looked. Like, he was, like, just against the wall and not able to move. Bizarre. This same guy's mother was in the house at the time, and she was a psychic. She was overcome by a spirit and had to be helped from the house. She described it like she'd been drained. A woman named Nicole was on a tour and the guide was leading them through the alley and her fingers started to tingle. So she starts telling Zach and the guys about this experience. When the group got to the front of the house, she had a panic attack. She said she'd never had anything like that happen to her before, but she just she couldn't breathe. Her chest really tightened up. So, hey, why not ask her to come hang out with you while you do an investigation of the place? <laughs> but she Poor agreed <laughs> to it. So she joined the guys and she had not ever been in the house because they just went up on the, the uh, porch there. So she joined the guys for part of their investigation and they started with an EVP session in the basement. They all claimed to feel a very heavy and dark energy that was making them dizzy. And I mean, most of the malevolent energy that people feel here is in the basement. I think that's probably why they got the stories going that something horrible must have happened there. They captured the following words on the spirit box. Pete, yourself, no, watch it, she was raped, it was, and then they couldn't get the rest of that, it is violent here. When asked if there was a body buried here, the box said street. Some people think the murdered girl was buried in the alley rather than the basement. So they're wondering if that's what they were referencing as being a street. Could be. The words found it, he's scared also came through. And UFC fighter Brendan Schaub had been a guest investigator with them. And the box said, Brendan, I always love it when that happens, because especially his name is not a very common name, I don't think. And to have that come across the box when he's there. Pretty cool. Brendan later claimed to feel something grab his ankle. A ball of light was captured on camera flying straight down into Zach's head, and on the infrared camera they captured an anomaly. 
what they did is in order to kind of try to trigger some kind of activity in here, they decided to pretend like it was a restaurant again, because that's when you had all this like trays getting tipped and furn- or pots and pans and utensils getting thrown around. So they actually had some wait staff come in who didn't even really know what they were doing there. Oh, my. <laughs> and then they had three different meals delivered to them. And then the wait staff would present it to them and they would act as if they were really at a restaurant getting served food or whatever. Nothing like really weird happened other than this, that ball of light that came down into Zach's head was when they were sitting at the table. And then the one girl kept commenting that her hands kept getting red. And everything that I saw talking about this said that they went blood red. I couldn't tell that her hands were blood red. She didn't hold them up to the camera that way. Blood red, I mean, we're talking dark, dark red. So I don't know. But for some reason, they had a different color to them and she felt really weird about it. So I don't know if it was something medically happening to her or something paranormal. The Denver police were called to do some investigating at the house to see if they could find any evidence of a crime. I tried to look up to see if there was anything further written about that, if they found anything. They at least had enough evidence, especially with it coming across the box with she was raped and talking about a body being buried that they said, well, maybe we should have the police just do an investigation. It reminds me of Kindred Spirits. Right. I was thinking about that. When Adam and Amy were, it was, it was, seems like there were multiple stores in that place and they were down underneath it. They were down in the basement. There was supposedly a body that had been buried down there. Yeah. And they brought a cadaver dog down and it was like hitting on a certain spot. So they were like, you know, we better call the police. And they did. Right. The basement really seems to be the most haunted area of the house and most definitely has the most negative energy occurring. Many people claim that there are demons down there, but it really could just be negative energy either from real crimes that happened or just the stories told about such things. Diane's mom's good friend, historian Kevin Ferris, took Diane on a ghost tour in Denver several years ago, and he told the group a story about an experience he had at the house while giving a tour around Halloween one year. He shares the same story in his book, The Haunted Heart of Denver, on page 27. My own connection, my own personal story to the building came at Halloween when I was giving a walking tour of the neighborhood. Though the place started out as a house, today it is rental office space. On this particular evening, the staff members of the various offices were having their annual Halloween party. As I related the basics about the house, we saw people wearing all the standard costumes of the holiday, from bimbos to zombies, and carrying all the food for the party. A lady dressed like the television character Elvira came out and asked, Hey, what are you doing? Which, of course, makes me think that we just lost Pee Wee Herman. He's very good friends with Elvira, so bummer about that. I'm giving a haunted tour. Well, come on in. I'll show you around. We have the basement decorated like a graveyard, including the guy who hanged himself. So now we've got a story about a guy who hanged himself. Kevin wrote, Blink, blink, blink. Okay. Because, I mean, to get invited to come inside of (laughs) a place that you haven't been inside of, it's like hot diggity. Before we go in, however, I have to tell you what happened to me here. Now, I work up there by those second floor windows with another lady next to me. Our boss works further back in the building. My colleague and I have frequently seen a ghost toddler walking around. This little two-year-old boy. He's so young that it's always more of a sad thing to see him than a scary thing. Anyway, we've mentioned once or twice our seeing this ghost kid and our boss doesn't believe it at all. He thinks we're imagining things or making a joke. So one day my colleague and I are sitting there working and our boss comes storming out of his office with his face red, absolutely livid, and he starts to yell at us. Who brought a baby to work? This is not a daycare or nursery. I can't get any work done with that baby crying. Where is that baby? (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) 
The woman, a la Elvira, related how at first she and her colleague had no idea what he was talking about since there was no baby. Then suddenly it hit her. You heard the ghost baby. Come on, come on, you can't deny it. There's no baby here. You've been hearing a ghost. She went on to say that the man's face went from red to white in a second or two, (laughs) his eyes getting wider before he began to stammer out. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I was just joking. I was just, yeah, um, I didn't hear anything. Just, just a joke. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, sure. Then he stumbled back into his office and they heard nothing more from him on the subject. She motioned us into the building. Two of my guests on the tour that evening declined to enter. Are they crazy? I would have been like, oh boy. We took the tour of the beautiful building, including a jaunt down into the unfinished basement on the perilous stairs. The wooden stairs that echoed loudly like the promise of approaching doom. Now, you may not know much about me unless you've read that preface thing. But here is where I have to share an important little detail about me. I have a very active imagination. Yes, it is true. No dull art I. So I need you to take this next bit with the proverbial grain of salt, knowing that I have an active imagination and that at this point in our evening, we had just been talking about ghosts, ghosts, and more ghosts, especially those related to the mansion we were about to enter. I have just told you how the stairs echoed very loudly, my footsteps seeming to create a sound that was much louder than I had anticipated. I wondered at the ponderous tone the stairs created as I descended, and it was decidedly creepy. As my first foot touched down onto the dirt floor of the basement, two things happened in that exact moment. First, the sensation beneath my foot was not initially that of stepping onto hard-packed dirt. Rather, it felt as if I'd stepped onto something brittle and weak that shattered and collapsed beneath my weight. What do you think that sounds like? Something brittle collapsing underneath your foot? Bones? That's what I would think. Second, within my head, I heard my own voice stating something, though not as if I had generated that thought myself. No, it was as if someone else was speaking within my mind, using my own voice to tell me something. The words that I heard in my head mingled perfectly with the sensation that I felt beneath my foot. You are not stepping on dirt. You are stepping on a field of bones. Oh, my word. The voice within me, though my own voice, rocked me to my core, even though the sensation beneath my foot vanished in a mere instant. I was pretty shaken up, but soldiered on as bravely as I could, at least for the moment. The place was indeed decked out like a cemetery and included a mannequin hanging from a water pipe. Great. Twisting slowly back and forth. The mannequin, not the water pipe. And the effect was quite grisly. At this point, I'd had enough, thank you very much, and excused myself to go outside. A few minutes later, our unexpected but welcome jaunt into the Whitehead Peabody house came to an end with the remaining folks returning to the sidewalk so we could compare notes. A number of folks on the tour had felt things in the basement, including pockets of chilled air and vortexes alternatively described as having extra gravity or denser air. Everyone agreed that the place had a very high creep factor, so they were ready to depart as soon as possible. Instead, I made them remain right in front of the building while I told my next story. Not very accommodating, perhaps, but it kept the mood right for our next tale. (laughs) That's great. But I remember him telling us that story that he said when I stepped off that stair... It was as if the ground beneath him had just completely changed and he was stepping onto bones. And if you're talking about a field of bones, I mean, that's a lot of bones. That's not just, oh, there's one buried body in here. Right. So now I wondered, like, what happened in this area of Capitol Hill before? Had there been a cemetery here? Had there been a battle here? Right. Who knows? But I was like, wow, there's no story to go with that. So I have no idea what that was all about. Or was there some kind of serial killer that made that their dumping ground? Great. (laughs) I could come up with all kinds of great stories. You've got quite the imagination as well. Yeah. 
The house isn't as grand as some of the other historic mansions of Capitol Hill, but it certainly does have a big reputation when it comes to ghost stories. Is the Peabody Whitehead Mansion haunted? That is for you to decide. Denver's full of all kinds of haunts. It's very cool. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Kelly, some of our executive producers may have noticed that lately I've been hitting like the same area in the bonus cast and then for the regular episode that week, just because I happen to be in those notes researching and then I find something else and I'm like, oh, I'll do that too. So we did Denver this week. Well, the bonus cast for, I think it was Monday of last week. So this was only for the people who are at the $5 and above level. It was a place called the Bulls House, which is in Westminster, Colorado. And Shelly had written us to say, I got to Bulls House before it opened this morning, but I walked around the grounds while I listened to the podcast. I was like, how cool is that? Did you get the bonus cast (laughs) dropping? She probably looked at it and went, oh, that's right down the road. I'm just going to go do a little hop on over there and listen to it while I'm walking around the actual place. Exactly. On the show, I mentioned Kevin, who wrote this book. He also wrote another book that was about other places other than just haunts in Denver. And he had talked to a woman named Linda, who was kind of the manager there, ran tours there. And so in the bonus cast, I share a ton of experiences that she's either had or other people have told her that they've had. Linda was a good friend, one of those people who are just worth knowing. She was sarcastic, irreverent, warm, and loving. She knew the history of Westminster better than anyone and knew every ghost story in the area. This morning while I ambled around, I told her she was on a podcast. She would have loved being on HGB, and she would have loved that the hauntings are still being talked about. She died in 2018 of an abdominal aneurysm, very sudden and heartbreaking. Oh, So I was sad to hear that, but I thought... Wow, that is so cool that not only did Shelly get to go walk around this location while I was talking about it, but that she could just say to her friend, you know, I'm listening to somebody talk about you on this thing right now about the house and the stories and things that you've shared. Yeah, maybe she was actually able to listen with her. Maybe she was. I just thought that was really cool. want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. He worked under Sir Almroth Wright, who was a pioneer in the area of research. Uh... And it would be here that Denver's millionaires wrote. Blah, 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 blah. Millionaires. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> exactly. Everybody should be able to speak Kelly by now. <laughs> I'm sure most of our <laughs> listeners can. And called itself Spirits on Grant Street and opened on Halloween in 18. 18- 
But it certainly does have a big reputation. 